Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with a membership helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing materials, programs, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's a site Utahns are all too familiar with. Gray, smoggy air filled with dangerous particulate matter. Officials say sensitive groups like children and the elderly should be especially cautious during times of inversion. During red air days, the air is unhealthy for everyone. We know this, so why do we continue driving to work? Why do we idle our cars contributing to the problem? That's the introduction to a recent story by UPR's Amy Kobabe, which you can find at upr.org. Well, today on the program, we're going to talk about the psychology of behavior as it relates to air pollution. Discussions coming up in about a half an hour. Hope you join us for that and weigh in. We'll also review various bills at the 2016 Utah Legislature, which address air quality. And our guests will include Matt Pachenza, Executive Director of Healed Utah. We'll also be bringing in USU doctoral student James Singer, who's done a very interesting study on behavior as it relates to sugar. We're going to relate that to air quality. And uh, we'll share some responses that we received through our Utah Public Insight Network query on this topic. As I mentioned, we hope to hear from you. The number is 1-800-826-1495. The email is upraxcess at gmail.com. We begin with conversation with Representative Rebecca Edwards, Republican from North Salt Lake City. I reached her about an hour ago. We're talking with Representative Becky Edwards, um, a Republican from, I believe, uh, North Salt Lake. Yeah, uh, representing a district in Davis County. We're talking about uh, air quality. There are several bills uh, being run this legislative uh, session. Uh, first of all, uh, I want to ask you what uh, kind of the overall view. Um, there is a, uh, a Clean Air Caucus. I believe you're a member of that. I am a member. The Clean Air Caucus started in 2013. really is a way for us to come together in a bipartisan way to look at an issue that impacts us mostly in the Wasatch Front, but of course we know it impacts the entire state as well. And uh, what can be done on the legislative level? There, there's a lot of moving parts with air quality. There are. We have uh, been working on legislation really um, strategically for the past three years, I'd say, and as well as appropriation, so budgeting things that matter the most. On the budget front, we've focused a lot on um, things like Utah-specific research that can help provide data for us as we examine these issues. We know we have unique topography here that make uh, some unique challenges for us. And so this data-specific research really helps a lot uh, to help us understand that and how to impact uh, change there. We have um, specific bills that attack everything from uh the air quality in the Uinta Basin with the challenges they have uh, to tourism impact, to economic development impact, uh, everything from area sources like uh, homes to industrial sources like the refineries and other entities like that, as well as trying to bring in the Tier 3 uh, fuels for our cars. So we, we have a multi-pronged approach to both appropriations and the bills that we're trying to pass. Uh, I think some would say uh, that's fine, but it's just sort of nibbling at the edges. What would you say to them? You know, I think there's 
it probably is nibbling at the edges, and what we need to do is nibble a lot more, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. There is no silver bullet. We've certainly made an attempt to to find the low-hanging fruit as best we can, and I think with without some serious commitment on the legislature's part to, to continue to fund some of the things we know will matter most, uh, it is going to be seen as small incremental changes. Uh, we've had a bill, for instance, for several years now that uh, has a pretty hefty price tag to convert dirty diesel school buses to um, cleaner burning fuel, and that has not received received funding for several years now. I think the expenditure on that uh, is, you know, 10 or $20 million, depending on the extent of the of the reach of the conversion, those are things that are going to require a significant commitment, more than just a couple of hundred thousand dollars here or there for things like research, for additional monitoring. Those things help, but to move us forward in a significant way, we're going to need something like uh, the the Tier 3 gasoline that several refineries, Tesoro and others, have stepped up and said, all right, we're going to move in that direction. And we do have tools we can use as a legislature uh, to help incentivize that move, uh, to help it come a little bit more quickly, um, tax tax incentives, tax breaks that that help make that move uh, come more quickly, and and we're using those as best we can. But it's it's taking a lot of nibbling. You're right. I wonder if you take us through uh, at least one example. Uh, House Bill 121. I believe this is your bill. Yes, um, building, building code amendments. Building code amendments. What would this do? Uh, tell us what would and what would the effect be? So every three years, uh, the Building Code Commission uh, releases their best recommendations for ways we can make changes in the way we build homes to make them more energy efficiency. Uh, we know that the more energy efficient homes are, the cleaner our air is, and that 40% of the air pollutants in our state come from area sources like homes. So this matters. Uh, While we have a lot of folks in the state who are buying older homes, we also have a significant market for new homes. We know that our state population is going to increase and by doubling probably in the next 20 or 30 years. So there's going to be a lot of new home uh, building. If we have the ability to adopt the entire code suggestions that come from this building code commission, we can realize significant changes uh, in our energy efficiency in our homes with the uh, suggestion that they have on there right now of ultra low NOx water heaters, uh, energy efficiency lighting, and then things that are, those are things that people even in existing homes could do. But there are some things that people in existing homes, it's just too expensive to do. And it needs to be done from the outset on the life of a home that would last, you know, 50 to 100 years. And those are things like the insulation, the actual structure of the building of the home, um, type of framing that goes into it, type of ductwork, really kind of technical things like that. And this bill says if there are ways for us to adapt to uh, better energy efficiency technologies in a home, we ought to adapt that and we ought to take seriously the 40-member board of building professionals, electricians, uh, plumbers, builders, 
that have come together and said, this is the best of the best, and we ought to be adopting those in the state of Utah. I'm reading an interview uh, that you gave, I believe, to the Davis Clipper. Um, 39% of air pollutants across the Wasatch Front comes from area sources like our homes. Yes. So we're, we've done a lot of work in the past focusing on um, industrial sources because they're, they're big pollutants in, in some ways. And, and we've, the Tier 3, of course, but what we have uh, not focused on so much is changes that each one of us can make in our own home. And that's what this bill really is um, an attempt to do. You know, it costs a little bit more for each home builder uh, when you're getting that initial uh, price tag for your home, possibly in the $2,000 range for a median size, I mean, median priced home across the state. But those, that initial investment is paid back within a matter of two or three years. And then over the life of your 30-year mortgage, you're end up ending up realizing a savings of $4,000. So it's a way for people to save money, really, long-term, to put a, an investment that's going to last probably 100 years into our valley and, and a way to have cleaner air all in one. So it just makes sense. And um, I, I hope that we'll, we'll get a hearing on this bill. Right now the bill is in rules, and it's awaiting a committee hearing. So that's where that bill is. The Clean Air Caucus is uh, bipartisan. Is, uh, are, are the bill uh, favorability uh, in terms of how representatives are looking at uh, these bills? Is that bipartisan as well, or is there a, a partisan split? I think that it, there's a bipartisan, a growing bipartisan appreciation for this issue and a growing appreciation between the urban and the rural legislators as well. We just had a bill uh, yesterday that we heard in, in our public utilities committee uh, from Senator Van Tassel that uh, he's, a, he's a senator from the Uinta Basin, and it talked about the need for um, research specific to that area and that unique industry. So we're hearing from people not just in Salt Lake City, the urban areas, but we're hearing uh, that this matters in Washington County as their population continues to increase with the tourism nexus and how important that is. We hear it from rural communities, uh, folks down in, in the Moab area, other areas like that that are saying, you know, if, if we get branded as a state with bad air, that's going to impact the people who are coming to arches, people who are river rafting, people who are coming to hike and fish and hunt in our state, um, more than just those who are here in the wintertime skiing. So the understanding and awareness that this impacts us statewide is continuing to grow. And I think to to a great extent, that's uh, an outgrowth of the Clean Air Caucus. That is was co-founded in 2013 by a Republican and a Democrat, and has co-chairs from uh, Logan to St. George and everywhere in between. And uh, we we support we we meet regularly enough that we're all aware of the legislation that's out there, and and really try and support each other with our efforts. Uh, finally, later in the program uh, today, we're going to talk about uh, behavior, and uh, we're talking with a psychologist. We're talking about behavior modification. This is based on a premise. I want to get your your ideas, uh, feelings on the premise first of all. A premise that 
um, it's going to take a lot of things to to make a significant dent in the air uh, pollution problem. But one of the things it's going to take is for more of us to make behavior changes in our lives, you know, drive less, uh, make some changes around the, the home. Is that a good promise, do you think? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, there there's efforts that the state can can put towards kind of public awareness things. I think we need to do um, a little bit better job on our end to provide services that make it easier for people to make those changes. Increased transit that um, makes it easier for people to take the bus or the train to work or to shop and participate in activities. Um, we need to let people know, hey, if you change all the light bulbs out in your home to high efficiency, it's going to make this impact. You'll have, if the whole state did it, we will have, you know, one fewer red air day in the state during the during the year or whatever it is. If you, when it comes time for you to change your water heater to an ultra low NOx, you know, make that that a little bit of an additional investment. And and here's the savings you can realize, and here's how it can impact your your life. Small things. Don't idle your car. You know, they're some of the most exciting outreaches right now in terms of behavioral changes are happening in elementary schools where these things are just becoming second nature to kids. And we have elementary school classes come up uh, and rally and speak on clean air. They get it and they get that changes, behavioral changes can happen and that they can talk to their parents. They're waiting in a drive through line or you know, wherever, don't idle your car, turn it off, then turn it back on. And these things are second nature to kids, and I think they can become second nature to us, and people are willing to make those behavioral changes and those sacrifices if they understand that it really will make a difference and that other people are in it also and that everybody has skin in the game. So we're seeing sacrifices and changes from our industry. We're seeing it from... uh, you know, area sources like homes that are being built. And then they are willing to sort of feel part of this, hey, we're all in this together and we're all, we all breathe the same air and we're all trying to make a difference. I think that goes a long way to garnering public support because we know it's important to people. We know that uh, survey after survey and poll after poll in the state, and especially in my district here in Davis County, this is a primary issue for folks. One of the top things they care about grandparents and and parents and, um, you know, everybody. It crosses political lines and it crosses age lines. And I'm really gratified to see it coming to this level of awareness and importance. And as legislators, I think we just have to continue to be diligent in pursuing um, any tools that we have, both with laws as well as budgeting, to um, continue to work for cleaner air and there, there are many of us at the Capitol who are who are uh, prioritized that and are working hard to do just that. That's Representative Becky Edwards. Uh, she's a Republican from uh, North uh, Salt Lake uh, City, and uh, she's a member of the legislature's Clean Air Caucus. Uh, her uh, bill is House Bill 121, Building Code Amendments, and she's mentioned several others. We're going to talk about more as the program goes on, and we're going to be talking about the psychology of uh, behavior modification as it relates to air quality. Representative Edwards, uh, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you very much for highlighting such an important issue. 
We're going to take a break uh, just to give out the phone number here. The phone lines are open. We'd love to know what you think about uh, air quality. How is it affecting you? And uh, how do you think change is going to happen on an individual level? We'll be talking about that uh, later in the program. And up next, uh, we'll be talking with Matt Pachenza from Heal Utah. More on the legislature and air quality. The number is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. And you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with a membership helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing materials, programs, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org. Did you know that looking at scenes from nature can make you feel less impulsive? Researchers at USU found that people who viewed natural scenes made better decisions. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about air quality, and uh, we're going to be talking about it uh, a little later from the point of view of psychology, psychology of uh, behavior modification. We'll be talking with a USU doctoral student, James Singer, uh, with his sociology students. He does a, an experiment, I think, every semester. Uh, he, he gets them to give up uh, sugar and grains uh, to teach them how hard uh, change is. And uh, we're going to relate this to air quality. We're bringing in now Matt Pachenza to talk more about the legislature and uh, what bills are running there. Uh, Matt Pachenza is executive director of Heal Utah. Matt, welcome back to the program. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Uh, Before we get into some specific bills, I talked with Representative Edwards earlier in this program. Ask her if she feels like the bills, for example, that are at the legislature right now are, are just nibbling at the edges. I wonder if you feel that way. You know, I actually think we're doing a little bit better than that this session. Now, you know, I'm sure Representative Edwards would say the same thing, that, you know, we've got, what, six, seven days of of legislative left, and the reality is that the fate of of every bill is essentially up in the air. So I think there's an excellent chance, you know, the day after the session ends that I would say, you know, not only did we not nibble at the edges, we didn't even take a bite at all. Or I think there's a chance we'll say, you know what, a couple fairly significant things happened. So I think that the the range of possibilities remains fairly wide, but there's at least the potential there for for some action that we would describe as, you know, is a little better than nibbling at the edges. By the way, you can go to uh, healutah.org and uh, they have a bill tracker there. So what are the top, I don't know, three or four bills that uh, you think would make a difference uh, should they pass? Yeah, so there's sort of one area of legislation that I'll mention, and then I can get into a few specific bills. And, you know, when folks think about air pollution, they tend to think about vehicles and about industry. And, you know, they're kind of the most visual things. Everyone sees the smoke come out of a, you know, a big refinery, and everyone sees the, you know, the tailpipe. But the reality is that one of the larger sources of emissions are our homes and buildings. Um, And that's a category of emissions that ranges from the smallest house to actually even up to kind of a good-sized business or a big shopping mall or office building. 
And every one of those structures has, uh, you know, a hot water heater and uh, something to deliver heat, usually a furnace or a boiler. And those tend to burn natural gas, and they tend to burn fairly clean. But when you add up the hundreds of thousands of such structures that are up and down our valleys, they do cumulatively actually put out quite a bit of pollution. So we have several bills this session that are trying to adjust emissions from buildings. And, uh, for example, there are proposals to um, make it so that our new homes would be much more efficient. And if your home has thicker walls and better windows and, and, and improvements like that, then you simply need less heat to heat your home, and therefore you're putting out less emissions from that boiler or furnace. Uh, similarly, we have proposals to um, require cleaner hot water heaters. So there's new technologies. It's called ultra-low NOx, and it's a, a dramatically uh, cleaner uh, burning uh, water heater. And there's proposals to uh, make it so that every one of those sold in the state as of a couple years from now would be the newer technology. So th that's an area that's really important, and it's a complicated area to talk about right now because we have a bill that kind of partly does both of those things but has a few troubling things, and that's a bill called HB 316 um, from Representative Brad Wilson. And it's been you know, Heal's biggest focal point during the session. A lot of folks are working on it. And, you know, to take a very complicated situation and make it kind of simple, it's a bill that we have strongly opposed at first because it didn't do much good. Now it's been sort of slowly improving. Uh, we're at a point now where we're sort of neutral on it, but we're continuing to try to push it in the right direction. Uh, taken together, some of these bills that you've talked about, uh, I know we can't put a specific percentage on it, but I think what we want to know is, that, that these things are going to make a, a significant dent. Uh, and I don't know how we, if you even can quantify that, but uh, what if you take well, you a stab can, at actually, that? And it's, okay. it's complicated math, but you know, I'll just throw out a few numbers that right now the building sector is responsible for, for somewhere around, the, around 35 to 40% of our air pollution problem. Now, the vehicle sector, which is currently the largest one, is actually going to get quite a bit cleaner in the coming decades. That's just because basically our cars are getting a lot cleaner. And so the projections are that buildings would become 60% of our air pollution problem. So you can look down the road a few decades and see that all those emissions from all those buildings will be the single biggest sector. Um, the hot water heater one, just one example of that, would remove uh, 2,700 tons of NOx from the air in our valleys each winter. And that number is probably somewhat meaningless, but it is a big number. And it's, equi it's the equivalent um, NOx reduction of taking 300,000 cars off the road. So imagine how challenging that would be. Imagine you know, what we'd have to do to get 300,000 cars not driving on northern Utah's roads each winter. You know, it, it would involve sort of some almost unimaginable investment in mass transit and that kind of thing. We can accomplish that same pollution savings simply by having folks buy a, you know, cleaner and only tiny bit more expensive water heater. So it will make a difference. Um, you know, folks should realize there's no one simple solution out there that's going to, like, cut the problem in half. You know, there's nothing like that. There, mm -hmm. there just isn't anything that can be that dramatic. So these things we're talking about are, they will make a difference. And if we can do enough of them, it'll start to add up to something pretty dramatic. Uh, so uh, I want to just follow up on what you said. A lot of different things need to happen. Uh, maybe give us a range of that. We've been talking about some bills at the legislature. If they pass, would would uh, chip away at this? We need the EPA to step in in a stronger way. Would um, you know individuals need to make behavior modifications? What what's the range of things that needs to happen? Yeah, I think generally, you know, we tend to answer questions like that by saying all of the above. And, you know, I think we can quickly run through the three sectors. Vehicles are a big chunk. 
good news. We have new standards from the EPA uh, called Tier 3 that are going to make your average uh, gas vehicle a lot cleaner in the decades to come. At the same time, we're going to be adding a lot of cars and drivers, and people will be driving further. So we need to do even more, and that would you know, entail you know, trying to get people out of gas cars into cleaner vehicles like electric vehicles. And it involves you know, getting people out of cars entirely and get them into transit and you know, riding bicycles and walking. All those things together can make a big difference in that area. Um, you know, getting folks into transit is expensive. So that is something that you know, is going to require kind of a, a political will and a public willingness to invest dollars in a system like that. Uh, with buildings, we've talked about um, some of that already you know, in terms of building codes and things like cleaner water heaters. Um, another uh, uh, area, a source of pollution from that sector is wood burning. And this is one that's hard for people to talk about. It was obviously very controversial last year. People were, you know, very resistant to the notion of, of burning less. But, you know, the data does suggest it's a pretty big source of pollution. So that's one that probably falls more on the individual, to be honest, to, to try to really say, hey, is this something I need to be doing in the winter? And, and what cost does it have on my neighbors? Um, lastly, we have a big industry. There are uh, 31 uh, individual uh, industrial sources that, that fit in the category that the EPA has made for, for big industry. And we do think those, those entities can do more. They have gotten cleaner over the years, but um, there's a bunch of proposals kicking out there, including from groups like HEAL, um, that we think could strengthen oversight and reduce emissions from that sector. So. It's a wide range of things. It is the individual decision-making that you and I make, but it's absolutely public policy that helps drive that and helps, helps make big decisions as well. I wonder what you're, uh, you're hearing from people there at uh, Heal Utah. I'm, I'm thinking about there's, there's a segment of the population that's, that isn't obviously affected, at least from their perception. They're not being affected by bad air. You, know, you hear about people who are obviously very much affected, but there's still a segment who... It maybe doesn't like it, but it isn't being affected that much in their obviously in a, in their personal life, and and so maybe isn't moved to make changes. You know, I think it's fewer and fewer people that there's issues that that heal works on where we have to convince people that something's a problem. I, I think a, a good example we we do some nuclear waste watchdog work, and you have to explain what nuclear waste is. You have to explain what the threat is. It's very there's a ton of education that goes into sort of even getting people to the point where they have any kind of concern. Um, with air quality, frankly, it's the opposite. People come sort of flooding to us being worried. And when we have had an inversion like we had, what, two, three weeks ago now, um, you know, the, the public outcry was extraordinary. We, we put an online action alert out, and, it, you know, 2,500 people had done it within 24 hours. And we, we see that kind of thing over and over again, and then there's polling that shows that, you know, it's the number one or number two issue for most people in northern Utah. So I think that part of it is, is kind of taking care of itself. And people see stories. I mean, there were news reports here during the thick of that inversion a few weeks ago where, you know, emergency rooms had a 30% increase in visits. And, it, you know, it, it's, it's something that it's not just ugly, and it doesn't just smell. It actually sends people to the hospital. Um, you know, with a range of, you know, respiratory issues and heart ailments and a bunch of stuff. So I think everyone knows that now. I think their neighbors tell them. I think they read it and they see it. And, you know, I, I think the good news when it comes to air quality is that people are very worried and do want to do something about it. Finally, Matt Pachenzo, what do you, a prediction for this legislative session? Do you think uh, some of these key bills are going to pass? 
You know, I think that there's the things that we're feeling most optimistic about. We haven't mentioned anything yet about sort of clean energy or, or rooftop solar, but there's, there's uh, two different bills that are supporting uh, rooftop solar in Utah. Those have so far kind of sailed through the various committees, so we feel pretty good about those. So if you're someone that's interested in investing in rooftop solar, it may get a, you know, a, a decent amount easier for you in the coming years. Um, I feel pretty good about the hot water heater requirement. Um, there's a, a bill that will specifically do that from Representative Ed Red, HB 250. Um, that bill has moved forward so far. With the verdict still out on that big buildings bill, HB 316, but that has some decent elements in it as well. So I would say on the optimism side, um, feeling good about rooftop solar and feeling pretty good about some of these things that could help rein in building emotions, emissions. Excuse me. Uh, well, uh, HealUtah.org is the website, and there's a bill tracker there. You can see how those uh, bills are, are doing and how what Heal uh, thinks about those. And we've been talking with Matt Pachenza, Executive Director of Heal Utah. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to continue this discussion. We'll make a change. We're going to talk about the psychology of behavior modification. Uh, we'll concentrate on uh, cars and uh, on, on emissions and, and how that relates and uh, other factors that relate to uh, individual behavior. And we're going to be talking with James Singer, who's a USU doctoral student. He teaches sociology at USU, and, uh, and he does a very interesting experiment with his students. He has them give up sugar for a week to, to show them how, how hard change is and, and to study how change happens. We're going to relate that to uh, air pollution uh, we'll be having that discussion uh, coming up. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll have a report that was filed recently by UPR's Amy Kobabe talking about some of these uh, issues. More following the break. Utah State University is hosting a financial planning workshop on Wednesday, March 2nd from 1130 to 1230 at the Taggart Student Center with an evening program from 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at the Family Life Center, 493 North, 700 East in Logan. The Uinta Basin Orchestra and Choir presents American Concert, Music of and About America, Saturday, March 5th at 2 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. at the Vernal Junior High School Auditorium. Weber Pathways presents writer Craig Johnson at this year's 13th annual author dinner in Ogden, Friday, March 11th. Johnson is author of the Walt Longmire mystery novels. To view events or to submit your own, visit our community calendar page at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about air pollution on the program today. We've been talking about uh, several bills that are being run at this session of the Utah legislature. We're going to make a transition now uh, to we want to see what you think. And we're going to talk about ourselves as individuals. Uh, do we feel a need to, to make individual changes to help clean up our air? Uh, if so, how do we make those changes and how do we get enough of us to do that? Those are some questions that James Singer um, deals with. He deals with uh, change in general, and he has an experiment with his students dealing with sugars and grains, but a lot of these principles uh, can apply. And uh, we go next uh, to a story that was filed recently by uh, UPR reporter Amy Kobabe. Uh, Air quality in Utah's infamously bad, she says, so why do we continue to contribute? 
Amy Kobeb tells us how social change and the climate are related. It's a sight Utahns are all too familiar with. Gray, smoggy air filled with dangerous particulate matter. Officials say sensitive groups like children and the elderly should be especially cautious during times of inversion. During red air days, the air is unhealthy for everyone. We know this. So why do we continue driving to work? Why do we idle our cars, contributing to the problem? James Singer is teaching his sociology students to understand why it's so hard for us to change. In order to help his students understand how difficult change can be, he has them give up sugar for a week. And what happens is over 90% of students tend to fail this experiment. And this shows there are these larger social things at play that really limit the choices that we can actually make, right? So that's the whole experiment idea. Singer says change can come when we have a personal experience leading us to it. But when it comes to air quality, for most people, that doesn't happen. For some people, it is when others get sick. But when it's the majority, they're like, eh, this isn't really affecting me. It doesn't really do anything. Um, so not going to do it. That's the problem. That's, that's a big problem in how we do those things. But for the most part, we don't want to change. It's a lot easier for our minds not to have to think through those choices. For Jeff Ostermiller, thinking more about air pollution did come with a personal experience. His son got sick. He's my first, so you know, you're a little paranoid anyway. Um, called my wife, and he was in the emergency room. I ran there, and they came in to check his oxygen levels, and they were so low that they just got the readout. The nurse turned pale and ran out of the room. And that led to us having to make sure, especially on red air days and versions, that he had to carry an inhaler, um, be really careful about outdoor activities and that sort of thing. Although Oster Miller's son has fewer problems now than he did years ago, he uses his experience to try and help others understand the negative effects of their idling. There have been times where I've seen people idling, and I've actually told them the story about my son and said, you know, look, a lot of people suffer from this, and it's a hard problem to solve, but we're never going to solve it if we don't start. Singer says starting may have more to do with the culture of our community. We're trying to juggle all these different kinds of choices of how to get around. We have cars, we have buses, we have carpooling, we have all these different things. But because there's so much that goes along with carpooling, trying to figure out someone else's schedule, uh, seeing what time the bus comes by, uh, how often will it do that? Can I take my kids on this ride? Can I take my groceries on this ride? Makes it a lot more difficult to the point where it just is like, ah, I can't do this anymore. I can't make this decision, and we revert back to the habit of driving the car. Although Singer says it can be a gloomy subject to talk about, there is still change that can occur. This is the main thing to understand with social change. To make changes, everyone has to participate, but no one can do it alone. So you say, well, what can I really do? You have to join other people. You have to find other people who are doing similar types of things. Therein lies the power. With Utah Public Radio News, I'm Amy Kobabe. Thanks for that report, Amy. And you heard uh, from James Singer in that report, and we bring uh, James Singer on the program uh, now. Uh, James Singer is a doctoral student at Utah State University, teaches, as you heard there, uh, sociology at uh, Utah State University. Uh, James Singer, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Tom. And uh, you'll recall that we talked with James Singer, oh, a couple of months ago about uh, cultural appropriation. And uh, people remember uh, James Singer is, uh, the, the, I think your Twitter, Twitter handle is the Urban Navajo. That's right. 
right, at Urban Navajo. Yep. At Urban Navajo, yeah. Uh, so you do you work with a lot of those issues. But uh, you have this very interesting uh, assignment. Uh, so I wonder if you could expand on this. This is, uh, this is now a regular assignment, I understand, in your, in your class. Yeah, I do it for my Intro to Sociology students. And what we do is I have them, for the first week, it's a three-week experiment. The first week they just track how much food they're eating, specifically paying attention to the sugar consumption and also their wheat consumption. And the whole idea behind this is saying that there's a lot of scientific evidence that's out there that says that sugar is causing these terrible social problems, public health issues with regards to obesity and metabolic syndrome. And then there's also this upcoming literature about wheat where that is causing a lot of these problems with our, our brains. There's neuro... Um, the generative type of, types of things that are happening with grains. And so I say, okay, here's the evidence. Here's the data on this. So for the first thing, I just want you to track how much you're eating. And here are the recommendations from the American Heart Association. And so the students can look at these things. The second week, they're supposed to cut those things by half. And then by the third week, they're supposed to eliminate those, those two ingredients completely, all added sugar and all wheat. And what they find is that it's incredibly difficult to do this type of thing. Now, it's only for one week where they have to go without this. Right, but I have an over ninety-five percent failure rate, even though it's worth their part of their grade. What? So if they don't do it, they get a lower grade. Is that the deal, or it's not the deal? Um, mm. I want the students to go through the process of how difficult it is to learn mm. um, what individual changes. If they are able to pass and and succeed, they get extra credit. Okay, but everyone has the, you know the opportunity to do that. What what's important is that they're they're doing the science, they're involved in the data tracking, and they understand that they themselves are part of this larger picture. And what I find is interesting is that anyone could lie on this thing. Anyone could lie on it. But the students don't do it. They can't do it because the data is there, they have to track this, and they, and they most of the time can see, like, yes, the structural factors that are going around me, it's so difficult for me to change my behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, structural factors like the advertising, I suppose, right? And the, and the fact that uh, the packaged food, sugary food, is just so easy to get to. Exactly, Tom. Yeah. yeah. I would say that um, apart from that, we see that 80% of all the food that we have in the supermarkets today are laced with sugar, added sugar. So this could be sucrose, high fructose corn syrup, all, all the different kinds of sugars that are there, which means that what, what choices do we really have? And this gets at a larger debate of structural types of things, social factors, versus our agency or individual choice. So when you go into a supermarket and you say, okay, what can I really buy? And you're looking around, you're like, wow, actually the choices are quite limited if I want to avoid sugar or wheat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's an education component first, and I want to start making parallels to, to air pollution, and and there are obvious parallels. Uh, you know, if you, I, I think on some level we all know that uh, on really bad air days this is affecting all of us. Although there's a different level of of how it obviously affects us, but then there's there's that critical point where some of us drive less and idle less, and you know try to make uh, behavior changes, and and others don't. Yeah, I think that one of the um, less effective approaches that we have as scientists is that we present information and we hope that it leads to like an attitude change or a behavioral change or even a, a social type of change. 
And and my study and lots of different kinds of studies show that that at least in my case, you present the information, and people still don't change. And we also see that um, what happens. There's a professor. Her name is Sheena Iyengar. Out of the, she's a professor of business out of Columbia University, actually. And she did a study back in the, the mid-90s about this paradox of choice, that when we have too many choices, it actually hampers our ability to commit to something. And this can be like what we have when uh, we have all these different kinds of choices when it comes to solving our air quality problem in Cache Valley. We can put up solar panels. We can buy different kinds of cars. We can carpool. We can do you know a whole list of different things. And then it, it starts to overwhelm us. And what we see is that with behavior, we have to have a kind of a combination of three things. Ability, is it hard to do? Is it easy to do? We need to have motivation. There's a low motivation. There's high motivation. And then these triggers. Now, it's easy to go outside in the middle of February, and we're like, wow, it's super cold. We go back inside. We put on a jacket. There's a high motivation there because it's cold. We want to stay warm. The trigger is there, the cold weather, and the ability to do it is quite easy. All we have to do is put on a jacket. Now, it makes it more difficult when we look at these things with um, air quality. We look outside. We see the air is bad. We know this is causing us problems. Right? It's like the cold weather. I'm cold, but it's causing us physical health problems. But we don't have quite the same kind of uh, structure set up for us to easily put on the coat, as it were. Um, we don't have the, the, the way to make this behavior so easy. And part of it is because we've got the structure or our, our entire infrastructure for transportation pushing us to drive, right? We've got these big roads, we've got everything that's kind of sprawling out, and in order to get to places, we are forced to drive. I would, I would ask someone to try to cross uh, Main Street during the traffic hours. Uh, you can't do it. There's, there's so much traffic, and it's dangerous. It's such a wide road, and it makes it really not very desirable to want to walk or even to ride your bike. Right? So we've got these structural factors that make it like, I don't want to do those kinds of things because it's, that, that also is dangerous. So we need to figure out ways in which to make the, the infrastructure or these social forces more uh, easy for us to make these individual behavioral changes. I want to read, uh, just, just read down through some responses. We put out a Utah Public Insight Network query. Uh, this is a, a, a program whereby people can respond and, and become a news source on uh, specific uh, issues that, that you're just experiencing. We, we have this up on our website. You, you can become a source. We hope you will. Utah Public Insight Network. Uh, Jeff Ostermiller uh, responded, and uh, he's the person you heard um, whose son was affected in Amy Kobabe's story. So I just want to go through these. And so here are the question, just uh, four simple questions. Does the quality of air impact your mental or physical health? If so, how? Jeff says, Most, uh, mostly it's affected my son. When he, has two, uh, when he was two, a red air day led to a trip to the emergency room. Fortunately, he's grown out of his asthma. I suffer from seasonal affective disorder, and the associated lack of light that accompanies inversion seems to make my symptoms worse. It's important to note that uh, people most experience and respond to the acute effects of bad air, while there's ample evidence that we should probably be more concerned with the chronic effects of repeated exposure to poor air. Second question, have you made lifestyle changes due to Utah's air quality? If so, please let us know what changes you made.
great. Jeff responds, given that I work in the office, inversion and bad air days probably affect my children more than me. They can't play outside on red air days. During extended inversions, I try to make it a point to go skiing to get a little sunshine. Sounds like a smart idea. Uh, third question, would you relocate temporarily or permanently to live with better air? And Jeff says, we've considered it. Uh, and the last question, uh, how do you cope daily with the inverted air? Jeff says, I stay inside and complain to others, which is a lot of people do that thing. I get angry when I see SUVs idling in parking lots while people run into stores. This is incredibly selfish. The most vulnerable people in our society, children and the elderly, suffer the most due to bad air, and people feel like it's okay to help them uh, put them in harm's way, he says, question mark, all so they can be less cold for the time it takes their heater to work. I don't get it. I try to le- I try to drive less or carpool. That's Jeff Ostermiller responding to our Utah Public Insight uh, Network there. Uh, so, James Singer, there's several things there. Uh, one thing that I'd like to follow up on, is how much of this behavior change has to be collective, or, or is it, or is it easier collectively? Uh, it's you know if, if everyone around you is doing it, um, does that make it easier individually? Absolutely. Um, there have been experiments all the way dating back to the early 1950s with uh, a researcher named Solomon Ash, and he has this famous experiment about conformity. And if you're interested, you can just go to the Wikipedia page on the Ash Conformity Experiments. But what this is, is that he had these two different cards, right? He had, he had, he had like six subjects, seven subjects in there. And the, on these two cards, they had these lines. And on one card, there was a line, one line. And on the other card, there were three lines. And one of those lines, one of those three lines, matched up to the one on this test card. So they would go through... And people would, the, the researcher would ask, okay, tell us which one matches, which, which card, uh, which number matches to the test card. And they'd go through and say B, 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 B. But what one of the people didn't know is that everyone was in on this except for one person. And it was the test conformity. And what they'd see is that as people uh, gave the wrong answer, instead of saying B, they'd go C, C, C. It comes up to the person who's not in on it. That's the actual test subject. They look at it they can clearly see that it's B, that the line is equal to B, but everyone else is saying C. And we see that people give in to this, this kind of conformity thinking. And what happens is that we have this uh, emergent norms that occur. And when we have good leaders that, that take this leadership opportunity and model good norms or good behaviors, we want to emulate that. There have been studies about trash um, around bus stops and when they, they put all this trash inside of this collective bin so people could see it, people thought, oh, look, all this trash. Now I can throw this, throw this on the street. And it was the exact opposite behavior that they wanted. But when they showed someone who was uh, a leader or someone that they looked up to, like a basketball star or some kind of politician, and it showed them throwing it in the garbage can, they, they measured this, that the, the pollution or the, the litter around these bus stops was less. And so... This is what's really interesting, is that when we see someone that we respect, someone that we value, a leader, uh, demonstrating new behaviors, we want to start catching on and, and do that same behavior. And then when as we see everyone else doing that behavior, the conformist inside of us says, ah, I don't want to be a social deviant. I want to conform with everyone else. You start doing the behaviors also.
So I'm, um, I'm going to stereotype this just a little bit. It, it, so if all of us are on recumbent bikes, and I see, I see these, <laughs> I see these good people, uh, you know, going to work at the university, uh, then, then maybe I'll get on my recumbent bike. That sort of thing. As long as we can make that uh, that norm seem normal. Now, it kind of seems outlandish now because the common sense says, "Why would you do such a thing? That that looks that looks ridiculous." But I think. As we start to shift these things and we start seeing more people doing that, oh, yeah, absolutely. You're going to be, like, trying to get the best one so you can compete with the Joneses. <laughs> right. I guess so. Yeah. Uh, by the way, here are the questions. I'm putting this, these out to you, um, and I'd love to uh, love to hear what you think. The number is 1-800-826-1495. We have James Singer with us, and we're talking about uh, behavior change, uh, the fact that it's hard. Students in his class find that it's hard. Uh, some succeed, most don't, when they just try to go one week without sugar and grains. Uh, 1-800-826-1495 is the toll-free number, 1-800-826-1495. Here are the questions. I'd love for you to respond to any or all of these. Does the quality of air impact your mental or physical health? Have you made lifestyle changes due to Utah's air quality? Would you relocate to live with better air? And how do you cope daily with inverted air? Those are the questions. One eight hundred eight two six one four nine five or upraxcess at gmail dot com is the way to get to us. Upraxcess at gmail dot com. Uh, here are Catherine Sylvester's responses. She responded through the Utah Public Insight Network. Uh, does the quality of air impact your mental or physical health? She says yes. During yellow air days, I experience sinus headaches, a scratchy and sore throat, and irritated eyes. I also notice my children's skin looks pale and unhealthy. Uh, second question, have you made lifestyle changes due to Utah's air quality? Yes, I no longer idle in winter or summer. I trip chain and carpool. Would you relocate temporarily or permanently to live with better air? Yes, I'm afraid the poor air quality may affect mine and my family's health permanently. I wish others, such as the health department, would run an awareness campaign to educate the public as to what steps they can take to improve the air. If everyone stopped idling, for example, I think it could make a difference. How do you cope daily with the inverted air? I stay indoors when possible. If I have to go out, I plan to start wearing a face mask to see if it helps with my sinus problems during bad air days. That's Catherine Sylvester. Thank you for that. And I'd love to get your responses to this. And we're talking with uh, James Singer uh, for uh, another 10 minutes here on the program. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495. And... Uh, the uh, email is upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, here's a response from Glenn in the Uona Basin. He says, I'm wondering why the Uona Basin region has not been required to meet other regions' air quality targets. We seem to be quite a bit behind several of our counterpart regions when it comes to the non-attainment st uh, status. We're just now in the oil field industry in the basin, catching up to rules and regulations that have been in place for an excess of five to ten years in other areas. Some are immediately adjacent, such as a region just north of here in Wyoming, known as the uh, Jonah Unit, uh, to whom we uh, whirl the, uh, in the uh, oil field industry. We are constantly hearing that such and such company has been fined millions for noncompliance and that it's coming here eventually, quote-unquote. Yet we've never seemed to get a firm date for compliance or even a timeline. Furthermore, we do not have uh, state vehicle emissions test requirements in either UN or Duchesne counties. It's like that old complaint about the weather. Everybody's talking about it, but no one's doing anything about it. 
I have heard that all of this is due to the Ute tribe and its sovereign status and intricacies involved there. I don't know if uh, that's true or truly the case or apocryphal. These air concerns should be a good place to start. As you know, we do not have the same transportation options that are available on the Wasatch Front and other less rural areas in the Una- than the Uinta Basin. So cars are vital to survival here, which I believe makes emissions testing and compliance much more imperative. Uh, that's uh, from Glenn out in the Uinta Basin. Thanks for that, Glenn. Uh, so James Singer... A lot there, from another from Catherine, but from uh, Glenn. But one, one, uh, I guess, connecting point, be, at least between uh, the respondents that I've read um, to our Utah Public Insight Network, they have been personally affected. Uh, Jeff's son went to the emergency room. Uh, Catherine has family members who are very much affected. I guess that that will move you to action, but I don't know if you're not obviously affected how you get moved to action. Well, I think... Um Narratives are what, really what drives social change. Um, we can have all the data in the world, and and the numbers sometimes seem really kind of dry. Like, I don't know if you, Tom, uh, bust out a good academic journal while you're sitting at night. You <laughs> Instead of turning on television, you're like, hey, I'm going to read from the American Science uh, Quarterly. I don't tend to, but dry. Uh, yeah, it sounds like you do. Well, honestly, not not as often as maybe I should. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. But what I'm what I'm getting at is some of this data is dry, and how we communicate that can be hugely improved. And so what we find though is that stories, these narratives, tend to hit people. I mean, if you look at it, uh, why do we do the things that we do? I mean, for some people, that's why they join religion. It's because of the narrative. There's no data behind this. There's no data behind why someone joins a religion, but they do it because of the story, right? They do it because of, you know, the they believe in a savior, they believe in a prophet, they believe in, you know, whatever this is, and they and they follow that, right? And that's because of the narratives. Now, there was a study that um, our department did, Dr. Courtney Flint, with her um, students in in conjunction with the city of Logan, and from her survey responses they found that most people are aware of this problem. Obviously, they can look outside, but they they do view it as severe. They do view it as severe. And that's what's interesting is that most of us understand that this is a problem. We just need to hear more of these stories, more people speaking up and saying, you know, my family is suffering from this, right? I can't go outside. I can't do those things. Um, that, that, That starts to impact people. Uh, we heard from Representative Edwards uh, earlier in the program, um, and she said that w- what she's hearing, at least anecdotally, is uh, the children are getting educated on this, and that some of those children are having an effect on their parents. You know, hey, mom and dad, let's not idle here, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I suppose that's one way that change might happen. It's one of the best ways. McDonald's figured that out years ago with their Happy Meals, Right. Mom, mom, let's go to McDonald's. I want the I want the toy and the Happy Meal. Fantastic marketing tool, right? Because one of the worst, most shrill sounds is the complaints <laughs> of an annoyed child. Oh, yeah, that's true. Right? And so when you get kids at this level, they're very insistent and they're very like, "Hey, mom, this is the fact," or "Hey, dad, these are the facts." They're like, oh, "Okay, this is this is a good way to do it." So I think that educating the youth right, is one of the most effective ways to get parents to do things, right? Because the parents are like, oh, yeah, the kid knows more than I do. I have to show that I'm an adult. I better, I better, I better do what the kid is talking about. 
I want to go back to your uh, sugar and grain um, experiment that you do with your students. Uh, so they get educated, and then you present this uh, challenge to them, go without sugars and, and grains for a week. Many of them fail. What do you think they come to at the end of that? Are they affected by that to, uh, to, to perhaps go uh, forward from that and, and make changes that they'd like to in their lives? What's great is that um, the 5% that actually do uh, succeed tend to revert back to the status quo pretty quickly, right? And that's what's really interesting is that there's no motivation for them to continue on. Um, there's the health benefits, obviously, but there's no grade. The, the grade that's hanging over them is gone, and that's what I think is one of the most interesting components of this is that there's that kind of authority figure that's looming around that might, might have future implications for them. But when there's not there, when it's not there, they have the metabolism of a 22-year-old. They're like, I can eat whatever I want, and I show them. You know, I give them a side profile view. I'm like, after 25, guys. You know, you might want to start thinking about how the dad bod is not as cool as you might think it is, right? That that sugar does have mm-hmm. an impact on things. Yeah, yeah, uh, certainly. Um, so uh, I want to just review those th- those three factors again, and and uh, what I guess what I come to is back to what all my guests have said during the program today. It's it's going to take a lot of different factors. You've got to come at this air pollution problem from a lot of different angles. So you talk about motivation, trigger, and ease of action. I guess for one example, government's role perhaps is making it easy to act in some of these things. Uh, I don't know. In the motivation, that's a public awareness, right? And then trigger, I suppose, I don't know, in the middle of summer when you don't have inversions, I don't know what we do there. Ride our bikes more, get into the habits of doing that. Um, I think government uh, regulation definitely does have an influence in how we do these things. Now, I know many people are kind of uh, not not super excited about having government involved in those things. Well, that's 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 one way to do it. Other ways have businesses get involved, right? Um, I think that there's a combination of these different kinds of sectors. You need to have government involved, regardless of how you feel about that or not. And you need to have businesses get on board with that, too. Um, and then the third part of that is kind of this nonprofit or public sector. And I feel that, for some reason, that the, the weight of, of the education tends to be put on this nonprofit or public sector and then government kind of responds, and business is always saying, hey, well, you know, is it good for profits? Is it good for this? And that's kind of the wrong way to do that. We need to be working all three of these major sectors of society needing to work together to get on a common agenda. We've reached the end of our time. We've been talking here in this last segment with James Singer. Uh, he's a USU doctoral student, and he teaches uh, introductory uh, sociology. He has this very interesting uh, No Sugar, No Grain Week experiment with his students. We've been applying that to uh, air pollution. Uh, James Singer, uh, you can find him on Twitter, at Urban Navajo. Uh, James Singer, thanks for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. And we thank Representative Edwards and uh, Matt Pachenza from Heal Utah for uh, joining us as well. We thank Amy Kobe for her story, which you can find on UPR's website, upr.org. You can uh, respond. Keep those uh, responses coming at upr.org and upraccess at gmail.com. We also thank our respondents to the Utah Public Insight Network, Catherine Sylvester and uh, Jeff Ostermiller. And you can join the Utah Public Insight Network at our website, upr.org. 
org. Coming up tomorrow, a very interesting and impactful uh, discussion. We'll be talking with Sue Klebold. Uh, she's out with a new book talking about uh, the, the effects on her life of Columbine. Her son, Dylan Klebold, was one of the shooters. The book is A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. That's what we'll be talking about tomorrow. Join us then. Thanks for joining us today. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. And thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University.